Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open House Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about murals and monuments in London and around the world. Important features of our city landscapes, these are... And in recent times, they've become even more prominent, it seems, especially following the Black Lives Matter protests after the death of George Floyd. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the Cable Street mural, its creation and its ongoing maintenance, and what it tells us about the role such artworks play in our ever-changing understanding of history. I'm your podcast host, architectural journalist Merlin Fulcher, and we're joined by my co-host, Selassie Satufa, co-founder of Black Females in Architecture, and Paul Butler, one of the artists who created the Cable Street mural in 1982. Today, Cable Street is a popular cycle route through Wapping, connecting the East End to the City of London. 90 years ago, however, it was the main conduit running through an area of poor working-class Irish and Jewish immigrants. Many of the Jewish immigrants had arrived in England to escape violent persecution in Russia and Eastern Europe. Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists, chose Cable Street as the symbolic background for a demonstration of his Blackshirt activists on the 4th of October 1936. These activists, like their counterparts in Nazi Germany, were intent on stoking up anger towards minority groups. In the end, Mosley's demonstration was rebuffed by the United protesters, who stood their ground around the rally cry, They shall not pass. The battle itself was largely fought between police and the anti-fascist local population, who had long been agitating for better working rights, as well as protection against evictions. This extraordinary event, now part of the mythology of London and a continued focus for left and right groups, was captured in an enormous mural 50 years later. It's a remarkable artistic achievement and very much worth a visit but it's also something that has always had to fight for its existence. Now, Paul, perhaps you could just tell us a bit about the mural itself and, and how it recounts the Battle of Cable Street, because it's such a technical, you know, such a detailed image. Sure, I, can, I, I will have a serious uh, try to do that. Um, thank you for letting me into your pod. It's nice in here. Brilliant. <laughs> Good to have you on board. <laughs> 
it's a dramatisation of the Battle of Cable Street. And the Battle of Cable Street is the, a curious name. It wasn't really a battle. It was a huge, vast, I would even say, uh, gathering of people who blocked the whole of the East End to prevent Oswald Mosley and his 3,000-strong army of black shirts from marching through the East End. Uh, the mural is huge. It's uh, one of the biggest in Britain, I think. It's uh, six, about 60 foot by 60 foot in my in old money. Uh, in the modern terms, it's 20 metres by 20 metres. It's a, a, a huge, swirling, dynamic design which focuses on the actual barricade, which is in Cable Street itself, hence the name Battle of Cable Street. So the barricade was built across Cable Street to stop mostly from marching through. it. Uh, the mural took uh, about a year to paint. I painted it with Desmond Rochford and uh, Ray Walker, and um, we each took a part of a different part of the mural. I took, uh, well, I mean, in fact, it was painted by four different artists, but I don't want to get diverted at this stage by talking about the history of how the mural came to be painted. One of, one of the chief uh, motifs in the mural, the most important motifs, is... Uh, the the horse and there are several very large images of horses um the white one in the center i painted myself the head itself is is uh, 4 meters long or you know 12 15 feet long it's a huge head so when you look at the mural you don't fully appreciate just how big it is but the reason i think there was a lot of emphasis on the horses was because the metropolitan police through the their entire Core, uh, core of mounted police at the so-called demonstrators in order to clear a path for Mosley's marchers. The barricade in Cable Street, that became the symbol of the point at which they were stopped, although that to some extent is symbolic rather than uh, uh, perhaps literally true. It wasn't quite as clear-cut as that. And so with the, the people as well that we see in the image, so these are the, the united protesters, uh, the Irish and Jewish working class people of, of Wapping, right? Yes. Um, exactly where we are now. We're in the Open City office recording this podcast. So it's uh, uh, the streets that surround us. Yeah. Um, uh, and so and when you chose uh, these faces, did you, did you sort of look into historic photos and try and recreate yes. the actual people who were there to capture some of their feelings and emotions at this we moment. Did. Yeah, yeah. We we each did quite a lot of research um, about horses, but also about people. I mean, the photographs of the uh, of the whole battle uh, show a sea of of people. One of the figures that I painted that uh, is is a key figure in the centre of the mural is a, a man with a white shirt who is throwing something, and I found him in a photograph, and he was a very, very small, barely discernible head in the crowd who I decided to um, turn into this figure. He's a guy with a flat cap in the middle, so I, I took him out of the crowd. Um, his body with the white shirt I did by drawing myself in the mirror and his head I turned so he's facing the other direction than he is in the photograph. 
but I should think his actual size in the photograph is only about a couple of millimetres tops. But Ray Walker, who painted the left-hand side of the mural, painted quite a few portraits, including uh, 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 people whose relatives were actually present at the, at the battle. Um, so there are identifiable uh, people whose uh, images you can see in the mural. We did certainly meet uh, Bill Fishman and Max Levitas and uh, Beattie, a lovely lady, who all of whom were at, at the battle, and we met them and talked to them, and we had first-hand accounts of, and, of uh, their experience of, of being there. And they were incorporated into the mural. So there's a lot of heads which are portraits. Um, there are others invented, which are, you know, quite a lot of the, the mural is, is, is not a literal depiction of what happened. It's a dramatization. I still quite like the idea of um even though it's 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 a dramatization and as you say there's not not every um image in there is is depicted from either the photos or something that was real there. I still quite like the idea of you amplifying the visibility of someone within a photo who was not of any real significance. Um, yes. And maybe just an average normal human being. I think there's something quite powerful about that. There's a certain sort of poetry in 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 taking him as a as a, a sort of a, a, almost a symbol, really a symbolic figure who represents all those those masses. I mean, there are estimates that there were um, upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand people there. Um, some some estimates have put it as high as. 450,000. The Jewish population of the area was around about 60,000. Um, so they would obviously have been a small percentage. And there were the Irish dockers who stood shoulder to shoulder with the, the, the Jewish people from the area. And just the other day, I heard a description of a bearded Jewish guy standing next to a big, burly, Irish Catholic guy at the barricade, which is a wonderful image, I think. This really was a significant event in stopping fascism. Certainly, Paul, for a lot of people, uh, myself included, experience this mural today, perhaps as a cyclist or perhaps someone passing through Cable Street. It's much more of a kind of way through than a, a high street in its own sense, as it might have been in the 1930s. But what you experience is just that kind of overwhelming impression of a moment and of people. And the feeling is very much like, as you describe, about seeing 250,000 people. It is an extraordinary feeling. And it's very much in that it is a mural and it was crafted to create that feeling. Was that your intention when you made it? We were conscious of the fact that it was a very significant mural um, and uh, we were faced with this sort of Herculean task, which um, I'm sure Dave Binnington, who initiated the project, will forgive me because he died quite recently. And uh, I hope he'll forgive me in saying that uh, ultimately it did defeat him. Um, he started trying to create this mural um, and it was very, very badly vandalised after he'd been working on the project for a couple of years, and he was physically totally exhausted. And as he put it himself, when it was badly graffitied, he felt destroyed by that event. So, yes, we were aware of that it, it, it was representing... It was a hugely significant mural. 
Just just kind of on the back of the points that you've made about this particular mural, I'm wondering why are murals like this one and others so important when it comes to capturing social history, um, something often overlooked in prestigious galleries and museums? I think the answer is actually probably uh, quite simple in a way, and that is that in museums and galleries, they're locked away in uh, these uh, sort of mausoleums, you know, they're, they're, they're places where people go, you know, and let's face it, you know, here am I speaking as a fully paid up member of the middle class, but I mean, the people who go to art galleries are, if you go to the Tate and the big, these big institutions, are predominantly middle class and uh, they go there to sort of pay their, you know, it's like, it's like a kind of religious... It's a quasi-religious kind of experience, isn't it? They have to go up the steps of the Tate between the great pillars into this great uh, edifice, you know, which stands for culture with a capital C, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, so those, those artworks are all locked away in there, in these, in these spaces. And however much uh, us left-wing artists might protest... Uh, we have to admit that the arts are elitist. So if you want to, if you want art that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the environment, in a public space, it has to be taken out of the museum or the gallery and into into the real world, where real people will can see it. We can see that major historic events cause ripples around the world. The death of George Floyd led to Black Lives Matter protests across the US and other countries, including the UK, where monuments to slave traders such as Edward Colston in Bristol and Robert Milligan in London have now been removed and other debates started. And this is something that's happened throughout history. So, for example, 10 years earlier uh, from now, we had the Arab Spring and that spread across uh, the Middle East. Uh, there was like a big landmark in Bahrain called the Pearl Monument, which was a focus for the protesters. Uh, and now it's been demolished by the government because it represented their kind of anger at the establishment. 20 years before, we also had the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, statues of Marx, Lenin and Stalin were torn down Old republics were reformed. And here with the Battle of Cable Street, we know that it took place amid a backdrop of rising anti-Semitism in Germany. And there was also appeasement at home. It was a very complicated and difficult time. The mural that you created in the 1980s, that was at a time when in London, the British National Party uh, was on the rise, especially in parts of East London. Uh, but then at the same time, there was also... Um, more people engaging with anti-apartheid movements. Those were gathering pace and it seemed like uh, there were many ripples interconnecting. Is the creation and destruction and renewal of monuments and murals always interconnected to wider historical moments? The answer to that is a very resounding yes. I mean, you can't say that as, a, a, I suppose, a, a sweeping and universal statement. I mean, you're talking about monuments in general and uh, um, murals sometimes become monuments. They become a, a, a memorial to an event or a place or for all sorts of reasons. My feeling is that a monument is sometimes confused with a statue 
But I mean, if you if you examine the word statue, you, you, you immediately come across the word state, statute, statement, static. You know, these all tell you that this is something permanent, immovable, and this is something which is imposed on the people. Um, so the people have to stand in awe before this bloody bronze or stone thing, you know. And I have to say, I came from Bristol. I comes from Bristol, I should say. And uh, I wa- I've walked past the statue of, uh, of uh, Colston innumerable times. I'm sure I did. But I have to tell you, I wasn't aware of it. I never knew I walked past it. As far as I was concerned, it was just a bloody plinth with a bronze bloke on it who uh, God knows who he was, but he was some big wig, you know. I think, you know, that monuments should be dynamic and they should be responsive. And I think one way of dealing with Colston would be to, um, well, they've already pulled him back out of the Cumberland Basin, which is what we call, we call the dock. And, and the poor bloke, he was all dented and covered in red paint and God knows what. And I thought it would have been great to put him back up in that state. <laughs> And yes, what a, a great Vivian Westwood. <laughs> so, and I've actually talked to uh, on on sort uh, of social media with a, an acquaintance of mine who's also comes from Bristol, who's also a sculptor, and we thought, well, why don't we just chop chop Colston up into pieces and put him back together in a different order, you know, and make him <laughs> nice. into. A, <laughs> Make him in a, into a sculpture. We include the red bits and uh, and the, and all sorts of other colours. Right. Um, I think there's two there's two points that come to mind. I'm beginning to feel that actually you're right in terms of the words of the word statue and monument um, and, mem- and murals and memorials. I think with the murals, it's it's it feels like it's the exact opposite of, of static as you as you refer to statues as being. Yeah. And in the cases where the murals are kept sort of um refreshed and you know repainted and 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 kept in good good standing i think in those cases that sort of interaction with constantly visiting it back and that it, it becomes sort of a process it's not stagnant it's not it's not yeah. it's not it's, it can't be forgotten unless in the cases where they're not sort of constantly renewed and refreshed. But in the cases where there's constant renewal and constant refreshing of it, I think there's so much opportunity for it to move away from being something static and into something yes. being dynamic and into something that continually throughout history come back into a conversation and be spoken about and be remembered as opposed to, like you say, you're a Bristolian and you've walked past the statue numerous times, but you've totally not acknowledged it being there. Whether that's through ignorance or through it's a statue, it's been there. I, it doesn't make a difference to me. Um, I think there's something quite interesting about that static versus dynamic thing, and then also yes. about about him being thrown in the in the in the in the <laughs> in the dock. I think then in the bring Cumberland him, Basin. Yeah, in the basin. I think yeah, bringing him out and him being um, graffitied all over. I actually think a better place for him, not not to put him back where he was, but I think a better place for him would be in a museum and the the real and full history of him as a person be laid out bare to to be seen and understood. If you put him in a museum, he'd be consigned to history where he belongs and he should certainly be... Hmm. He he should be stuck in the dustbin of history. 
On the other hand, if we transformed him into this figure of, um, you know, who we could say on the one hand, out of our sense of anger, that he would be a figure of contempt. Um, but he would also be, if he was in a public place, he would be a reminder of our celebration of his, of our repudiation of him. We reject that. And this is a, is a memorial to that, re, that repudiation or that rejection, you know. On this theme, I think it's really interesting how we're discussing the sort of the creation, the destruction, the renewal of of monuments, but also the, as these massively emotional, very loaded with feelings uh, moments in history. So, for example, the videos of Colston being dunked in the basin uh, yeah. in many ways will become the future artworks. Those yeah. actually will be the artefacts that are more significant than the statue. Yeah. But there were feelings in the creation of that statue. But if I think about the process of the person who built that statue originally, it's not a very exciting feeling. You can imagine it being a kind of propaganda thing, a kind of statement of resistance to change in the 19th century. But then again, also, you created a monument. You created Cable Street. What did it feel like when you were creating that monument? Did you feel like you were kind of capturing this moment uh, of of the the nineteen eighties of those conflicts. Well, there's always uh, 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 this disparity between intention and realization, and every artist will tell you that uh, there is a huge difference between what they intended to do and what they actually did. There's a wonderful quotation from a poet: "Between the idea and its realization falls the shadow. Something else happens. You know, it it becomes." Unexpected. So what, what really happened was we thought we were painting this, this huge monumental mural, but ultimately, because it was such a provocative statement, the right found it so provocative, and we had the BNP or the EDF or whoever they were, you know, they attacked it repeatedly. So this mural that we thought we were painting became this site of uh, conflict. The afterlife of the mural has been extraordinarily, um, it has lived, you know, it has lived, partly because it's been a target of the far right and it's been paint-bombed, um, I can't remember how many times, I think four, possibly five times. And on one occasion, there was going to be a, a march by the BNP past the mural. Um, and so we tried to cover it up with these huge 40-foot by 40-foot tarpaulins to stop it being paint-bombed again. And, of course, the tarpaulins got, got wrapped around our scaffold towers and we nearly got carried away across the Atlantic. But, anyway, the one one of the things that happened was that I went away to went off to get fish and chips one lunchtime when I was repairing it and I was at the scaffolding cleaning the, the gloss paint off this, off this mural, which had done terrible damage to it. And when I came back, I found my car, which had been sitting parked illegally outside the mural, had white paint, white gloss paint poured all over it, and the tyres had all been slashed. And um, the um, column 88 uh, rang the local paper and said, we've done his tyres and we'd have done it as long as if he'd been there. And, and just as an artist, what did it feel like being subject to this kind of abuse and also seeing your artwork being destroyed? What was that? What was the impression? Well, it was paradoxically an amazing feeling of, of, of the power of the images that you created to provoke such a, 
a violent response. But yeah, of course, it was scary. We were scared, you know. But we were at the top of the scaffolding and we were looking down, seeing if any heavies were turned up. And, uh, you know, we had a pol- police... They had a policeman at the bottom of the, bo- uh, the tower for a while wow. and he said, we'll, we'll stick around. And he stuck around for about 24 hours and then he disappeared and we were left. It'd be interesting to think whether the person who created the Colston statue also felt impressed that they'd provoked people to pull it down and destroy it. Probably not, but we will never know because they're long gone. Despite the Cable Street mural's best intentions, we know that racist abuse and anti-Semitism are once again on the rise. In many ways, the world feels like a repeat of the 1930s, with protests of the left and right ending in heated clashes. The true story of the Battle of Cable Street, its message of unity and those they-shall-not-pass ideals, risks being forgotten. On the 5th of June, the Washington, D.C. mayor named a stretch of 16th Street Northwest Black Lives Matter Plaza, with the words painted on well, in 11-metre-high yellow capital letters by volunteers. It's a beautiful gesture which inspired similar acts across America. But perhaps we risk asking too much of monuments when it comes to fulfilling the bigger task of social, political and institutional change. These artworks we're talking about are places, and they need to be places where people go in order to pay it's like a kind of pilgrimage you go to this place in order to uh, pay your respects to the dead or to the oppressed or whatever the the uh, you know the political historical context of that that site is so i think it's important that that from an architectural standpoint there is a recognition that this memorial, whether it's a freestanding object or whether it's something painted on a wall, whatever, is uh, is creating a sense of a place. And I think that word place is is very interesting. And Paul, exactly when you talk about uh, how uh, effective monuments can become places and you look at the Cable Street mural... Obviously, this was supported by the Arts Council, supported by various other important organisations at the time, but it was very much grassroots activism that made it happen. How important is it that these things really are of the people, that they really are made and, and shaped by, by those affected by these, these tragic stories in history? Well, I think it's very important that, uh, that artworks aren't uh, parachuted in. You know, I think there's a... That's a term that uh, people involved in in mural painting and uh, public art don't uh, find, uh, you know, a, a useful uh, metaphor. You know, we um, it needs to belong in its context socially. Ideally, it comes from the grassroots, but there's no question that sometimes it requires somebody who's dynamic and energetic to be a catalyst to make that happen. Sometimes you have individuals in that community who will kind of uh, make their voice heard and and be the driving force to make that happen. And sometimes it's an external force and sometimes it's a mixture. But murals ought to be embedded in the community, yes, sure, of course. 
look, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. I think in recent times we've we've seen a lot of small scale monuments created in London, but I don't think that they haven't always been highly successful. So, for example, um, there's the Jean Charles de Menezes monument outside uh, Stockwell train station. He was a man who was shot dead uh, by yeah. police. Um, it, it's quite a modest memorial, but it's not really doesn't necessarily fully uh, bring the message out to the widest possible audience. No, and no. then also, it, as you probably saw recently in the news, there's the, the PC Keith Palmer uh, monument. And this is uh, a police officer who died trying to protect Parliament against a terrorist attack. And this was a monument that was in the news because it was uh, accidentally desecrated in a quite an appalling way by somebody who claimed they were in the area to protect other monuments, yeah, uh, being yeah, one of Winston yeah. Churchill. Monument making hasn't been very effective in recent times. And we touched on the issue of statues. We're not really living in an era of statues. And the few statues we have, you know, they, they don't really work. And it, But yet we actually are, we're at a moment where we, we've got the mayor of London. He's promised a significant new memorial to Stephen Lawrence, for example. That's really important. Yeah. Uh, also, this yeah. discussion of a national slavery memorial, uh, a national seat war memorial. Uh, even the tr- the transport secretary was talking about uh, in Victoria's train station making a monument to transport workers uh, in recognition of Belly Majinga and yeah. her tragic death. Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, I think it would be great to uh, put up sculptures which are about current figures and they would be conceived of as sculptures rather than as freestanding monuments. If we're going to make a statue, it'd be great to make a, a big sculpture of Stormzy or, or uh, you know, whoever. I mean, you know, it would be great it. to have some... some, some, <laughs> some hey? I love Me it. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the key has got to be um, education. I think that would be a very welcome thing to see, a modern contemporary sculptor who doesn't look like the typical person sculpting or is not sculpting an object of a person of old, but is sculpting somebody and people of significance or even the average everyday person. Um, yeah. I think that would be great, a great thing to see. Um, recent projects such as the UK Holocaust Memorial have been beset by difficulties over their choice of location. Meanwhile, the enormous task of creating a universally meaningful memorial to the Grenfell fire seems almost insurmountable. What lessons can Cable Street Mural share when it comes to meeting these challenges? Well, I think the most important thing is that these sites become dynamic, interactive sites. Cable Street is an example. I mean, it's been a site for music, for speeches, for marches, for literature. So the point is that this mural, if you must call it that, but really it's a bloody huge painting on a wall. It's about images, and those images have a huge impact on people, and they raise people's consciousness. So they do, they are a learning vehicle that's very, very important for learning and for raising consciousness. So if I may use the example of George Floyd, the poor man died before our very eyes. And what gave this event such huge impact was that it was an image which everybody saw. And that is a testimony to the power of images, you know? 
And I was looking through, I must just give you this example. I was looking, looking through my archive. I've got hundreds of photographs and images which I keep in boxes. And I was just leafing through. And I came across this image of a, a small, ragged child. This sounds sentimental, but it's anything but sentimental. This is a small, ragged child in the Warsaw Ghetto in about 1943 or 44, when the Germans had encircled the Warsaw Ghetto and were progressively starving everybody in the Warsaw Ghetto to death. And there is this little ragged child. There's a photograph of him curled up on the pavement. And I looked at it, and I had to cover it up immediately because it moved me to tears immediately, and it made me feel desolate. And I think the same thing happens with the image of George Floyd. You, you almost despair. Images raise consciousness, and they affect people deeply. And until you affect people deeply, they won't start to sit up and take notice and say, Christ, we've got to do something about it. So what are we going to do? And we want to stir people to action. We want to raise people's consciousness. We want to educate them. We want to help them to learn. And I think uh, large public artworks like Cable Street can help to do that. Do you think there is a middle ground between official statues, murals, monuments um, and grassroots artworks? And how can well, commissioning... Yes. How can the commissioning process be adapted to create a new type of public monument? Well, we've we've got to we uh, you know the arts council you know God bless them I mean you know for instance I'm an artist okay the arts council I have to say with all due respect are completely out of touch. You need ways of making something happen in the grassroots, and artists often are very good at going in there and stirring people up and making something happen and leaving aside all the bloody bureaucracy and the administrative stuff and going in there and saying, you know, we can be catalysts. We can help to make something happen and raise consciousness. I think students in art colleges... I'm writing a book about art colleges at the moment. I think art colleges are, have been a very significant and underestimated had a very underestimated impact on culture in general. If we look at the arts, one of the biggest industries in Britain, it's debatable, but some people say it's a bigger industry than the than the finance sector. It's worth something somewhere between 90 and 100 billion uh, a year to the British economy, or it was until coronavirus. You know, somebody, you know, with the imagination and the reach can, should be able to try to bring in uh, the movers and the shakers, and we know who they are. There are people out there who are very good people. There are writers and playwrights and uh, filmmakers and artists, and and they are people who who will enable us to communicate and spread a message out through the culture, through British culture, rather than going through the bloody newspapers or the, you know, who are fortunately becoming rapidly marginalised. That's all we can do. It can only be done gradually. But the first thing to do would be to try and identify those people who might be valuable in putting together some commissioning agency. 
but that commissioning agency should recognise that these sites, monuments, whatever they are, they are places whose purpose, to a greater or lesser extent, is to raise consciousness. That's the chief aim. If we don't, if we don't do something about education in this country, we are really seriously going down the tubes. That's that's the message I would want to get across. And I, I, I don't think education through the, the through the existing systems like schools works. I think it has to be rethought. Diversity of thought is a, a, a big thing in in rethinking how artworks are commissioned and constituted. And it, it needing to be reflective of modern society. Um, on a final point, um, how would you like to see Cable Street Mural evolve, and how can our listeners play a role? I think there's a it would be a wonderful site for an education centre of some kind adjacent to the to the mural, and I think right in front of Cable Street Mural is an open space like a sort of little square, sort of piazza, sort of area. And that would make a fabulous space for performance. If Julian, my friend, who has some of my artworks, who lives opposite the mural and uh, in the building that used to be the pub where I used to drink when we were painting the mural, if he didn't object, it would be a fabulous site for, for music and for theatre and for events which uh, celebrate... Uh, the Battle of Cable Street and what it stands for and anti-fascism. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. I have. I've raised my consciousness. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Satifa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher and our producer Ruby Maynard-Smith and the Open City staff Ria Martin, Zoe Kay and Sean Milliner. Lastly, we'd like to say thank you to Paul Butler for his time and thoughtful insights, and to Nicholas Beach for connecting us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.